Good evening. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Rosemary Hole, and on behalf of the Catholic Information Center, it is my pleasure to welcome everyone who is with us tonight, in person and online, and to introduce Dr. Carrie Gress, author of The Marian Option, God's Solution to a Civilization in Crisis. Carrie holds a PhD from Catholic University of America and is a faculty member at the Pontific University. Her work has been translated into seven languages and has appeared in a range of popular publications and media outlets, including the National Catholic Register, Catholic Vote, Real Clear Religion, BBC, and EWTN, among others. Carrie is author of Nudging Conversations, a practical guide to bringing those you love back to the church, and co-author with George Weigel of City of Saints, a pilgrim's guide to John Paul II's Krakow. But tonight we'll be discussing her newest book, The Marian Option, God's Solution to a Civilization in Crisis. In her new book, Carrie provides a thoroughly researched bird-eyed view of the significant cultural and military events mediated through Mary on behalf of her spiritual children. Drawing from a vast array of dogmas, Vatican-approved apparitions, and writings of the saints, Dr. Gress has pulled together the remarkable story of Mary's overwhelming influence and intercession. And with that, please join me in welcoming Dr. Carrie Gress. Well, thank you. Uh, it's great to be here tonight. Thank you all for coming. I was a daily communicant here for three years, so being back here, it feels something like a homecoming for me. Um, so, obviously, this evening I am going to be talking about the Marian Option. Just a show of hands, is there, um, I'm assuming all of you have heard of the Benedict Option um, at this point, so I won't go too much into that. But, um, of course, the Marian Option is a book that was written with a Benedict Option in mind, um, but not necessarily to refute it. Uh, I first started working on this project last summer. I spoke at the, at, um, the Acton University conference that Acton Institute has every uh, summer. And I decided that I wanted to really dig into this idea of the Benedict Option and see what it was that Rod Dreher was doing and what he was proposing in it. And of course, at that stage, his book was not out. And in fact, his book wasn't didn't come out until after I wrote this book. So I didn't have the luxury of his book to really respond to directly. But I found that I didn't actually need it. And um, of course, Dreyer has made all sorts of comparisons to what's happening in our current current world, and connected it to um, to Rome. And so, therefore, Benedict becomes an an obvious person to go to uh, in our own culture because of these connections. Now, of course, there have been plenty of other people who have made or suggested other options. There's, to name a few, the the Escriva option, the Dominic option, the Tolkien option, the David option. And um, so the last thing I really wanted to do was add another option to this list. But um, it was one of these things that once I started digging into it, it just seemed like the Marian option had to be done. So um, as I was working on my own research on the Benedict option, one of the things that struck me from my research uh, for the book City of Saints was to see that, there, that John Paul II was someone that had lived through Christian persecution probably more than anyone else that we could point to in our, the last century. And when I was working on the book City of Saints, 
I've, I pulled out of my research a lot of different ideas of things that John Paul II had done in his life to combat, um, to combat Christian persecution, everything from humor, from learning from um, the enemies or using the enemy's vices for your own advantage. And, but at the end of the day, I saw that John Paul II's life was really formed by Mary, that everything that he did was underlined by this, this strong, strong devotion that he had to Our Lady. So it only seemed natural then to start looking at, well, what else has Mary done? What, what, else, what are other ways has she been effective? And, um, you know, routing enemies and converting large numbers of people and all of these kinds of things. So I had this hunch that I was on to something. And so I started digging into the research on Our Lady, and I, I was just astounded by what I found. Now, as all of you know, there are a lot of books about Mary out there, and, and so um, to write another one was something of a daunting project. In fact, after I was already under contract with Tan, I got to the stage where I was almost depressed because I thought, what have I gotten myself into um, with this project because how could I possibly write something new? But gratefully, I um, figured that she was leading me to something. So I uh, ended up, what I really ended up doing with this book was looking at Mary from a different perspective. I think a lot of, most of the books about Our Lady focus on one specific apparition or one theological point or something very narrow about her. And so what I ended up doing was really broadening the scope and tried to see Mary through a, a much bigger lens, a bird's eye view, really, of just all these remarkable instances of her um, influence in our, in our world and culture and, and throughout history. So rather than digging into the 2,500 um, apparitions that have been reported, um, I only chose nine to use in this book. I used only um, nine Vatican-approved apparitions of Our Lady and avoided this huge massive information about her that, that um, has come to us through apparitions, and largely because I didn't want to have to go back and, you know, if some apparition was later proven to be false, I didn't want to have to uh, change my book. But there was more than enough evidence for Mary's role and influence in our culture, just using those apparitions and then just looking at the, the bigger spectrum of her influence. So... Tonight, I want to go through five examples of why Mary really is God's solution to our civilizational crisis. So the first thing that I looked at was just um, this idea of history. I, th I think I was intrigued by, by the idea of, of Benedict um, that Rod Dreher used, but I wanted to look a little bit more clearly at what was going on throughout history, what is it that, that has animated history and especially civilizations? So I looked to the work of Arnold Toynbee, and some of you may already be familiar with him. He's famous for the quote, civilizations commit suicide, they, they aren't murdered. Um, so in his work, his, his lengthy work in, of history, he looks at 26 civilizations. And he studied everything about how they rose and how they fell and all of those different elements that, that help maintain them at different stages. And he uses this word called, um, uh, called uh, he uses a word or an expression, the creative minority, which is a small group of people who have an idea that basically saves a given civilization. Creative minorities, Toynbee says, are those who proactively respond to a civilizational crisis and whose response allows that civilization to grow. 
So the, the one good piece of good news out of, out of this focus study was to see that civilizations are not saved by a mass movement, that in fact there's a small number of people that are really going to um, fertilize the civilization and, and bring it back to life, if you will. So Toynbee then makes a distinction between the, um, a creative minority that happens from just a good idea or maybe an invention that, ha that happened um, that is spread throughout the community. But then he also talks about this different kind of creative minority, which um, is populated by people he calls the mystics. Now these are people, and St. Benedict of Norcia is a perfect example of this, these are people who retreat from the world, they douse themselves in prayer for a long extended period of time, and then they return to the world with these new insights that they gained when they were away, when they were praying. So Benedict Force is an example of this, as is uh, Saint Pope St. Saint Gregory the Great. He also spent three years in prayer before he internally restructured the church. Moses is a good example of this, um, of course, Christ and his 12 apostles are a great example of this. Um, and incidentally, Pope Benedict XVI has spoken of this idea of creative minorities, and he said that he thinks that creative minorities are really the only thing that could save secular Europe at this point because of the, the, the civilizational decay that's happened there. So I started looking at, at the question of, well, what has Mary done as far as influencing creative minorities, um, and particularly in the last millennia where we have a lot more data on, um, on civilizations and different trends. And of course, immediately, all sorts of different um, factors started jumping out. People like St. Dominic, who of course was able to route the Albigensians with the, uh, with the rosary. We have St. Ferdinand III, who was influential in helping to push the Moors out of Spain. And then, of course, John Paul II is another one. Um, we can also speak of the fact that a, a lot of the apparitions happened uh, at a time when there was going to be, before a major crisis was going to happen. So, um, for example, we have Blessed Alan de la Roche, who was um, one of the, the saints who helped reinvigorate um, the life of the rosary. And so, um, and this happened right before the Reformation. We can also speak of St. Catherine Labore, who promoted the miraculous medal during the tumult of the 1800s, or even of the um, three seers at Fatima. Mm -hmm. They were very influential in um, really changing the world. So, after kind of establishing this idea of the creative minority, I then um, moved on to the second theme of, of um, this talk, which is looking at Mary and her relationship to geopolitical events. Um, so, and I think this is an area that was probably the, the funnest part to really research about Our Lady because we don't speak about her very often as, um, you know, being having a, a strong hand in geopolitical events. But I, I think using the example of Spain is one that um, I was able to dig into and just see what, what started when um, the Moors took over in Spain in around the year 711. So um, at that point, at that stage, Islamic forces came from Africa up through Spain, and they really took over most of the 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 peninsula really for almost about 500 years. This, the Christians really tried hard to push the 
um, the Moors out. They did. They fought all kinds of battles. They asked for the intercession of all sorts of saints, including Saint James, and they never really got to the point where they could get the, push the Moors out of Spain. And so finally, um, I think it was in 1212. Uh, was the first time that a Spanish army was actually able to take back some some actual territory for the Christians. And at this point, what motivated it was really this general had the idea that he was going to fight under the standard of Mary. And so people thought, all right, this works. We're going to stick with it. And so sure enough, they ended up gaining back more and more and more and more territory. Um, Ferdinand III, who was the king of Spain and later proclaimed a saint, he and his son, um, Alphonse X, got to a stage where they, th- they saw themselves not just as kings, but they believed themselves to be Marian kings that were under a Marian monarchy. So the, the role of Mary was very well known in, in Spain as far as the, the, the Reconquista and taking back much of the country for Christians. Um, you also had what happened, the mosques that were taken over were named for Our Lady um, as they were returned to, or as they were turned into churches. And so Our Lady's presence was very palpable, I think, during this stage of um, Spain reclaiming its country. So finally, in 1492, um, after 781 years of Islamic occupation, Spain is finally Christian thoroughly through, you know, through and through. And at this point, prior to this happening, though, if we can back up to the year 1326, there was a newly liberal, liberated area of Spain. And at, that, it, at this place near the Guadalupe River, there was a shepherd who had an apparition of the most beautiful woman that he had ever seen. And um, this woman said to him, my image is buried here. I want you to tell a priest, have it dug up, and please build a church on this site. So what was discovered right at the, the, near the Guadalupe River was this image that came to be known as Our Lady of Guadalupe in Spain. And it was a, it was a miraculous image. People said that it had been painted by St. Luke, much like the image of Our Lady of Chestahova and the image of Our Lady of Kazan are also reputed to have been painted by St. Luke. Um, but what happened in 711 was that there were some very wise people that, thought, that knew that this image would be destroyed, and so they, they hid it up in the hills. And so, of course, it was um, exhumed, and it was um, displayed in this beautiful new church, and all sorts of miracles started happening to it. So not only were the Spaniards devoted to Our Lady, but they were also devoted to her in a particular way under this title of Our Lady of Guadalupe. So in 1492, when after Spain is finally free, you've got Ferdinand and Isabella returning to this site where Our Lady of Guadalupe is housed, thanking her for this victory. And at the same time, they're also feeling this sense of zeal, and it's that same year that they decided to fund Columbus and, of course, send him to the New World. So Columbus, of course, enters the picture, and we also know from a lot of the primary sources about Columbus that he also had this strong devotion to Our Lady of Guadalupe, and certainly to Our Lady in general, but Our Our Lady of Guadalupe in particular. He made a pilgrimage to her after his voyage, but um, every night his crew would sing the Salve Regina at sunset, and he named many of, he named an island after Our Lady of Guadalupe, in Spain. So there's this, this tight connection between Our Lady of Guadalupe and Spain and what's happening in the New World. 
So of course, you can fast forward another 40 or 50 years to the year 1531 when Our Lady of Guadalupe in Mexico shows herself to, um, to be the mother of the natives as well as the Spanish people um, in this apparition that she has, that she um, had with Juan Diego in, in 1531. So at this stage, um, when, our, when Mary appears in 1531, we all know the story of the roses that fall out of Juan Diego's tilma, and there's the image. I think what's lesser known, of course, is that this image has a lot of uh, double meaning, double entendres going on. In fact, this is one of the hallmarks that I found in a lot of Our Lady, in a lot of these stories about Our Lady, was that there's a lot of meaning wrapped into them in, in ways that are not readily apparent when we first look at them. So for the Spanish, they see this tilma of Our Lady, and they think this is just a beautiful image. It's very familiar to them. They already know who Our Lady of Guadalupe is. There's something, you know, clearly speaking to them on the level that they already understand. And of course, to the natives, they see a whole set of, of different in images, and um, you've probably read about some of them, but very quickly they were able to pick up from this image exactly who it was who, who it was that they were dealing with. Um, so because her head is bowed, she makes it clear that she's not a goddess. Um, her hair is hanging down, so that is a sign that she's a virgin. She has a bow around her waist that tells them that she's pregnant, and then there's a tiny flower on the center of her belly that's a symbol of divinity. So they knew immediately that she was the mother of God. So they're seeing very, very quickly in this image some amazing things that clearly the Spaniards aren't seeing. And yet, um, you know, this is really how she was so effective in healing, healing this, this culture and healing these two warring factions between the, the natives and the, the Spanish. So as a result of that, you also have something, the numbers aren't precise, but there's somewhere between 4 and 10 million converts that were created um, there that came from that single apparition, those set of apparitions. And we know that they were, were not just, you know, it was a trend going on or that somehow this was just what everybody was doing, so they all did it. But prior to Our Lady's appearance, polygamy had been something that was really a sticking point for the natives. They didn't want to give up polygamy at all. And then after Our Lady's appearance, all, all of them, the, the families were restructured so that monogamy could be something that was, um, was lived out by the natives. Um, so all of this, of course, then culminates. We're going to go back from Mexico. We're going to go all the way back to um, the Battle of Lepanto, which, of course, has gotten a lot of attention. Recently, people have talked about the Battle of Lepanto. But there's really, obviously, all this part of this is really backstory to it because um, the Battle of Lepanto was the, um, the head of it was Don Juan of Austria, who was the uh, illegitimate brother of Philip II of Spain. And so, of course, they, f they fought the, the Battle of Lepanto against the Turks. The Christians are wildly outnumbered. And they say their rosary the night before and, of course, end up um, being victorious. But what few people know is that after the battle, then Don Juan went back to Spain. He gave Philip II the lantern from the Turkish flagship. And Philip II went to Our Lady of Guadalupe in Spain and, and presented Our Lady's image with this... Um, with this lantern, so it kind of brings everything full circle. All of these, all these significant events that have happened throughout history, I think it weaves them together, and um, Our Lady's been at the heart of all of them. Um, 
And I think the other interesting thing is just even this idea of what does Guadalupe mean. Some people have suggested it's a um, half Arabic, half Latin word. I think it um, makes more sense based on the research that I saw that it's a fully Arabic word, which means hidden river. And I think that um, you know, looking at what Our Lady's influence has been starting from that hidden river is, is an incredibly overwhelming piece of um, you know, understanding her mission. So the, th the third um, idea that I would offer you to chew on about why Our Lady is really the God's solution to our, our civilizational problems is to look at the different problems that we're, and issues that we've had throughout history. I think the, um, we have a certain, a certain problem will arise, and then as a result, God will provide the saints or the individuals who are the antidote to that problem. We can see that certainly with St. Benedict. Of Norcia, um, he's building as the pagan uh, world is falling. You can see that with St. Francis of Assisi. He's focusing on poverty while the church is focused on rich heirs choked by riches. And you can also see that with someone like St. Ignatius of Loyola and the Jesuits who are response to the Reformation. So looking at, at our, our own world very specifically, I think one, uh, one of our biggest issues is just the fact that we have... Um, that women have been corrupted in a way that, that really hasn't been seen heretofore. I think um, just looking at the numbers, we've got 3,000 abortions a day in, in the U.S. alone. There have been 55 million since its legalization. Um, so just the size and the, the scope and the dramatic effects that contraception and abortion have had on the world is highly unprecedented. And so as a result, I think we can also look at... Um, what it is that Mary offers, and, and, and oftentimes you hear Mary spoken of as a very, she's just a doormat, she, you know, there's nothing here that women would, would want to emulate given our own culture, and, you know, even talking about this subject is difficult because our, you know, I, I challenge you, if any of you know of um, a, a women's magazine, ma um, movies that are targeted at women, or, or any kind of, um, you know, massive media, Hollywood production, or something major that is addressed at women, um, all of them are really focused on this idea that the women's equality can only come through contraception and um, through abortion. Those are our requirements, that, that um, any other message really just doesn't get out there. And so I think Mary is, in, in many ways, an antidote to this. And if we can try in, in some way to articulate who she is and what it is that she offers in concrete terms instead of um, you know, allowing her to appear just as someone saccharine and um, you know, unapproachable. I think that's an, an important piece. Um, so the fourth point I would say about why Mary is um, God's, God's solution to our issues is Mary's influence upon culture. Now, I have a whole chapter in this book about Mary's relationship with culture, and this was really fun to write because there's just, it's amazing when you look through one, you know, at a whole, all the things that Our Lady has done to influence culture. But um, I certainly wasn't the first to have this idea, not by a long shot, but in, in 1900, Henry Adams um, had this keen insight um, himself. He's, of course, the grandson of John, um, sorry, of President John Quincy Adams and the great grandson of President John Adams, and in his, his book called, or, story, or his um, short work called The Education of Henry Adams, Adams wonders aloud, or th in the pages, about 
what is happening with the universe and this, this new invention called the automobile that has just blown him away. He's, he's gone to the World's Fair and he's seen this invention and it's just mind-boggling what the potential could be for this um, for the future. And so as he's thinking about this, he suddenly stops himself and he says, you know, the automobile, or the dynamo as he calls it, is going to do amazing things, but there's nothing that is going to touch how powerful Mary has been throughout the ages. And of course, Adams's witness is, is even more significant because he was a Protestant. But at, living in Europe, he walked through the cities and the churches and the cathedrals and cemeteries, and he noticed that the height of European culture was really focused around devotion to Our Lady. Um, that there was really almost this connection between devotion to Our Lady and the height that culture would, would achieve, could achieve. Um, so he, was, he said, no matter what the automobile can do, it it's, it's truly cannot touch this, this notion of the Virgin and how much this can change and, and bring order to our own order and beauty to our own world. So, um, 100 year, 115 years later, National Geographic actually um, published something very similar to Adams's insight. Um, in two, 2015, Maureen Orth wrote. Mary is everywhere. Marigolds are named for her. Hail Mary passes, save football games. The image in Mexico of Our Lady of Guadalupe is one of the most reproduced female likenesses ever. Mary draws millions each year to shrines such as Fatima in Portugal and Knock in Ireland, sustaining religious tourism estimated to be worth billions of dollars a year and providing thousands of jobs. She inspired the creation of many great works of art and architecture, such as Michelangelo's Pieta, and Notre Dame Cathedral, as well as poetry, liturgy, and music. And she's the spiritual confidant of billions of people, no matter how isolated or forgotten. So Mary has been hugely influential, of course, on music, philosophy, artists, architects, composers. I think I, I was able to see um, out of the, the most uh, famous composers, there's 135 of them, Something like 117 of them have all written particular pieces for Our Lady. Um, so she's, she's clearly permeated the culture in ways that I, th I think we often forget. So moving on from culture, and I think this is really the key to understanding why the Marian option is, um, is important and really the key to how, how we can live it, is understanding who Mary is and who, are, who we are and what our relationship is to one another. Um, Vicki Thorne, some of you might know her, she's the um, found, foundress of Project Rachel, and she's got this great definition of women where she says, um, women are practical responders. And I think that um, this idea fits Mary very well, that she's the practical responder par excellence, that she, um, she really is our mother, she really is anxious to help us in and, and, and so, so many ways. Um, so the idea then behind the Marian option is to foster this relationship between us and Our Lady and to have this great confidence in her because we know throughout history, um, but also through the lives of the saints, just how intent it, 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 she is to help us. In fact, Sister um, Lucia from Fatima, the, the, the um, nun who saw Our Lady at Fatima, said that Mary told her that there's no problem, uh, material or spiritual, but particularly spiritual, in our age that cannot be solved through the rosary. Um, and Padre Pio spoke of the rosary as the weapon. So 
The first idea of living the marrying option is to is to pray the rosary, and um, the second thought would be marrying consecration, where we can really draw closer to her. But it doesn't. The marrying option doesn't require moving. It doesn't require changing jobs. Um, and I think this is the exciting thing about it. It is very personalized to each and every person um, on the planet. That she, we all have a different mission, and so trying to, um, you know, say that everybody needs to do. Um, you know, head to the hills or, you know, do something that we're all, we're not all called to do the same thing. And um, so that's one of the, the reasons why I think the Marian option is so compelling because of the fact that she's, it is so specialized and, and she really does want to transform culture through each and every one of us, um, through the gifts that she's given and through this, this great relationship that she calls us to have. So the last thing I will say, though, about writing this book um, has been just the overwhelming amount of evidence that Mary wants to help us. Um, at one point, I, I just had this image in my head of, of um, you know, Christ and his mother saying, you know, what more can we can we do to impress upon you? This is the the way um, to, for for you all to save yourselves. There's a, a um, blessed um, Alan de la Roche actually says that at, at one point, um, and Jesus is speaking to him and and. Um, he says, if only my children would pray the rosary. And, he's, and it, Jesus is saying this. He calls it his rosary, not just his mother's rosary. And so um, I, I think that's at the heart of the Marian option is just really recognizing how much and in so many ways it is that they're trying to reach us and call us back to something very simple um, and, and accessible to all of us. So thank you. Thank you so much, Carrie. So we have some time for some questions. I just ask that you raise your hand, and I'll come over and bring the mic to you. Thank you. That was a magnificent presentation. One of the, one of the things that I really like about your presentation is the fact that you talk of the rosary as being a weapon. Mm -hmm. It's not politically correct, but it's really a weapon. Right. And uh, another thing is in the um, in the uh, the little little office of Our Lady, it may come from Scripture. She is referred to as Terribilis ut castorum castorum acesorinata. Terrible is an army set in battle array. Could you comment on that a little bit, please? No, I, I think it's wonderful. I actually use um, a, a, quote, a title like that, similar to her. Um, I, I think it's just overwhelming that she is this force to be reckoned with. I, I know um, there's this great line by um, uh, some salt priest that Our Lady wears combat boots, um, you know, that, that she is really not messing around. And I, I think that's. Um, just an, an amazing piece. I think the other thing about her that's fascinating, though, is that she knows her audience. She knows who it is, how she needs to deal with different individuals and different societies and cultures at different stages. I, I ran across these great stories of uh, Muslims who had converted and um, the Muslim men who, who all had these terrifying experiences of Our Lady, either in a dream or something awful would happen to them and there was a very clear sign that they were meant to convert. Well, the, the Muslim women that, that were um, explained, in, uh, these conversions were explained, and the children, they all had very sweet experiences of Our Lady, that she came to them in a very sweet and loving way, and, and it was that that transformed their souls. So I think, um, yes, they, it's really important to see this, this, you know, these two sides of Our Lady, that she's not just saccharine and pious, and, um, but in fact there's, there's some real force to be reckoned with. Hi. Hi. Um, uh, the movie Wonder Woman is coming out. Yes. And um, I was curious, um, uh, not Mary as 
like a religious figure, but maybe people who might not see her as religiously, how would they compare her to, say, Wonder Woman? And then the idea of um, force versus, you know, immaterial force and just, just you know, um, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to mischaracterize who she is. You know, she's not a right. tsunami. So right. Um, <laughs> and then in Wonder Woman, you know, it right. doesn't have to be from a religious perspective. It could be from people who would perceive her, mm-hmm. um, w- like a, as a role model from right. the culture versus. Sure. Um, I haven't seen Wonder Woman yet. I know. It, I think it just came out. Um, so I, I don't know if any of you have. If you have, you um, might have some thoughts on this. But I, I think that obviously the real danger is to. Um, to mischaracterize her, and um, so I would be hesitant to to say that they're not knowing anything about this Wonder Woman movie. Um, my inst- my gut tells me that that um, there's probably quite a divide between Wonder Woman and Our Lady, given just what the culture produces. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I probably can't comment on that well. Yeah, so um, yes, we can talk in a few months. I, I I'll go see it and then we can discuss it. I was wondering if you could comment. I might have missed it at the beginning since I came in late. But um, you can comment on the um, Our Lady of Guadalupe of Spain and if she's a similar image as Our Lady of Guadalupe in Mexico. Um, no, the, the differences. images are entirely different images. They don't they don't look anything alike. Um, and so yes, and of course the one in Mexico we know was painted by Our, Our Lady, and the other one of course is said to be um, painted by Saint Luke. Um, whether or not that's true, it was actually given to the Bishop of, of Sevilla, of Seville, by um, Pope St. Gregory the Great. Um, so it has um, a, a long history uh, as well, but no, the images are very, very different. Thank you. Um, so uh, having recently uh, converted from Protestantism, I was curious to see what in your research or in your book um, you've seen Mary address um, Protestant mm-hmm. cultures and civilizations, and whether um, she's done any work to try to um, influence uh, that side of the ecumenical divide. Right, um, that's a good question. Uh, well, the one thing that's interesting is is that while we have Our Lady of Guadalupe going on, you also have the same period in in Mexico, fifteen thirty one. You also have um, the Anglican. Reformation uh, happening where um, where images of Our Lady are being burned in the streets and and Our Lady's really being renounced. Um, so it's and I, I think you so she's she's going somewhere else. She's realizing that England is sort of lost. This is not her foothold anymore. So she's going somewhere else and creating all of these converts. But I think this is one of the, part of the influence of the Rosary and part of the influence of these apparitions is the fact that she has. Um, shown up before before the Protestant Reformation. She knows how important these the Eucharist is. She knows that the, these very Catholic things um, that unfortunately have been by and large abandoned um, by a lot of Protestants. And so it, there's there's definitely a, a sort of a groundswell that you can see at different stages where she's she's you know urging people to pray the Rosary. Um, for these specific um, events that are happening throughout history. My husband, no hard questions. <laughs> Not a hard one, um, but, but uh, a request for a little amplification. Your third point about God providing exactly what we need at, at a particular mm-hmm. moment. You touched on in the book this notion of an anti-Mary and this age of... Mm-hmm 
something which is contrary to Mary and why Mary might okay. be the, the right antidote. I was wondering if you might expand on that a little bit. Sure. While I was writing this book, it, it struck me that whenever you talk about Mary, there's always this equation of um, Mary and Jesus and Adam and Eve, that there's always a female and a, a, a male component to the discussion. And so at one stage, I realized that there's a discussion about an antichrist, but there's very little, in fact, almost none, no discussion of uh, this idea of an anti-Mary. And so that's when I really started looking at our own culture. And, and I don't mean it in the sense that there's one person, although I think we could all think of a few people that might be an anti-Mary per se. Um, but, <laughs> but that... Um, but in effect, that, that it's an actual movement. And we know that St. John speaks of a movement of, an, of antichrist, that there are movements um, of an antichrist. So it would make sense then that there could be an actual movement of an, an anti-Mary. And I've spoken to a few notable Mariologists about this, and, and they've been actually pretty excited about the idea. Dr. Ha Scott Hans invited me to speak about it next summer at the Defenders of Faith um, conference. And um, so I think there's, there's a lot to it, but just looking at just how unprecedented it is that we have women um, in, embodying the kind of advice kind of vice that that we have um, it's almost ironic because of course uh, Aristotle is, is noted for having said that women are um, deformed males well it seems like we're sort of racing to prove him right um, in the sense that we're rejecting what it is that makes us very feminine and and um, female and trying to you know prove that that, that we c we are the same as men and when in fact clearly we are not so um, that's really the the idea behind that that's in chapter ten and I'm actually working on another book on that topic specifically that will come out next May. Um, Mary does make it clear the importance of saying the rosary, <laughs> and um, I think probably I'm not the only one in this room that struggles to stay focused during the rosary because right. if you're saying that every single day for. You know, 70, hopefully 70 years. It, it can be really hard to get inspired. Um, right. You know, like you think, oh, I've completely meditated on every aspect of this decade <laughs> that I possibly right. could. Right. Um, so what advice would you give us to get the most out of the rosary and to stay engaged? Because um, it can sometimes become a little repetitious. Right. Um, well, I know what we do for our, our children, in fact, who are very small but say, say the rosary for us at night and uh, with us at night is... Um, we actually got one of those flip books that has images on it. That that's that's been helpful, um, and you know, there's uh, part of it too is really, you know, you don't have to. I don't think you necessarily have to feel guilty that your your the meditation isn't happening as deep because there's also this element of contemplation that can happen. I noticed what, years and years ago, um, when I was a master's student, I w used to go walking at the cemetery, and when I would pray the rosary, I would I would start I would. I, would walk long enough so that I could say all three decades. This tells you how long ago it was because there wasn't luminous mysteries yet. But um, I would find repeatedly that I would start with the, the, the joyful mysteries and I would, I would kind of get into it. My mind would wander. And, this, and this, the second decade, my mind would wander all over the place. But I would have these fruitful ideas that would later then sort of come come to fruition that they weren't there was they, these thoughts weren't just accidental but in fact it felt like it was a real contemplation and then the third the, um, set of mysteries um, would then sort of come back to to the mysteries and I would be praying them in a different order so it wasn't like it was just the the sorrowful mysteries there I was getting fruit from but anyway I think that's one of the things too is just to even see Maybe if your thoughts are wandering, maybe there's a pattern to them. Maybe there's more going on in your own experience of speaking just to you and um, that you should be 
paying attention to instead of feeling like you're you're failing at at, at praying the rosary. But in effect, um, you know, there's the Holy Spirit is is speaking very very much to you in that experience. And that was one of the fun things about this book was also just even talking about the close relationship between Our Lady and the Holy Spirit, and just how united they are. And and I, I won't go into too much detail because there's a lot about it, but. Um, certainly in the life of um, St. Maximum Colby. Um, but nevertheless, I think that's just another key, is just understanding how tightly united she is to the Trinity and to their will and how um, they're all, they're, it's a family. They're all kind of working working together with us when, when we are praying the rosary. I'm curious, uh, on that note of, of Protestantism and, and uh, the, differen- the difference, mm-hmm. I'm curious, can you comment on what do you think is lost in, by Christians or for Christians that... Mm-hmm. Um, don't have a relationship with Mary, right. that don't have this reverence for Mary. Sure. Um, actually, it was uh, Blessed uh, Cardinal Newman who said that he thinks that when we lose Mary, it's not, it, it won't take long for us to lose the rest of it. That, in fact, that there's, she has this, provides this kind of link that really keeps us closely tethered to, to the faith in many ways. And I think when you see what's happened to a lot of um, Protestant uh, denominations throughout this last century in particular, um, you know, what's happened with uh, contraception on that issue and all of these other sorts of issues, um, you can see that there's there's something to it. Um, but more fundamentally, there's also just even the issue of, I think we talk, in, our, in the church we have a very, you know, important and, and rightfully so emphasis upon the Petrine um, order of the church, but I think there's also very Marian peace that is lost and um, different saints have, have spoken to how it, you're, you're lopsided even within the church if we don't honor this Marian side then the Petrine can't, it can't be effective either that the two need to go hand in hand and I think this is one of the things that doesn't get emphasized a lot as, as far as just even the unique contributions that, that women can bring to the faith even looking at, at scripture you know the, the women know things sometimes before men do and you know there's these, these different patterns that we can out of, um, of of scripture, even just the fact that you've got all, everyone at the foot of the cross is named Mary. All the women are named Mary. You know, it's sort of a sign that we need to be like women need to be like Mary. That there's the, all those elements. So um, it's a big question with a you know much longer answer, but sort of in a nutshell, I think that there's a lot of pieces that are are really missing when we when we leave her out of the equation. Um, sort of building on that last question, actually, um, something I've been wondering about, I'm actually about halfway through your book at the moment, and um, I ran across a quote, I can't remember um, where you'd taken it from, but it was something to the effect that, you know, once we lo- lose Mary, uh, our devotion to Mary, that the civilization will crumble, I think very similar to what you mm-hmm. were just saying. Mm-hmm. And um, something I had been wondering about is, like, do you think it would be valid to draw a correlation between um, the Protestant Reformation and the rise of the Enlightenment, the sort of, um, you know... Mm-hmm branch of philosophy that I think has ultimately led to our, you know, hyper-secular right. Right. Um, and you know, civilization decline in Western mm-hmm. civilization, uh, particularly given the sort of rejection of that intuitive mm-hmm. side of woman? Yeah, no, I think that's a, a very good question. I think that you are, are right. I mean, even just the fact that we have lost theology, uh, you know, that they were certainly coupled and uh, tethered together in a unique way in the medieval period. And then, uh, of course, um, the Enlightenment comes along and calls itself enlightened because they were, um, you know, so dull of mind because they ha- they couldn't think without thinking of God and, and believing in God. So, yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for what has happened um, philosophically when, when we leave that 
piece out. And even just looking at, I'm teaching a course right now, I'm um, almost finished with it on, it's a survey of goodness, truth, and beauty um, throughout the uh, philosophical tradition. And it's just phenomenal to see how tightly um, how interested the um, philosophers such as uh, Blessed Duns Scotus and, of course, Thomas Aquinas and, and Bonaventure, how much they revered Our Lady and how m- much work they put into focusing on her, um, the theological elements ab- about her. So, uh, yeah, I think that there's a lot. You are on to something, um, that there's a connection between losing Mary and losing those other pieces. Uh, yes, I think you mentioned in your book um, uh, statements by Our Lady of Fatima about Russia being converted. Right. I presume that means converted to the Roman Catholic Church as opposed to the Russian Orthodox Church. Mm-hmm. But if I look at Russia mm-hmm. for these past hundred years, I can't perceive any great mass conversion to Catholicism like, you know, right. at Guadalupe you had in Mexico, for example. Right. Um, Despite the consecration, I know you mentioned the 1984 consecration of Russia, but even after that, right. uh, and, and Vladimir Putin's Russia, I don't see as an answer to peace plan, especially right. since I saw this movie, Cries from Syria, which su- suggests that uh, Russia's policy in Syria is anything but a peace plan. Right. Um, so uh, is, is there anything you can say about Russia specifically? Is there any kind of hope for Russia? Hope for Russia. Well, this is a um, it's a hard question because I think Our Lady, when she spoke in 1917, was talking about this is what will happen if people pray the Rosary, if people respond to my call, and part of that was um, and and also if if um, if Russia is consecrated to my heart. Um, but one of the pieces was the fact that the lies of communism would not spread. So we know communism is spread. We know there's a billion people living under communism now in China and North Korea and et cetera, et cetera. So uh, my own take on it is, um, you know, Sister Sia said that the consecration of Russia was valid, but I think that because of the fact that people didn't do what Mary asked, the world doesn't look the way that it should if we had responded to her call the way that she explained it at the beginning. So as far as Russia converting to um, Catholicism, I don't know that that is a necessary stipulation based on John Paul II's own emphasis on, on the two lungs of the church. Um, so that that's a theological question I, I couldn't answer. But, um, but I think that, again, all bets are off because of the fact that we are seeing these lies have spread so far, which is clear indication that we haven't done our part of the deal. And so everything is going to look messier than it would if we had come through, you know, in the way that she asked. So I don't know if that seems like I'm sidestepping the question, but I, I just think it's a hard question that um, you know, I haven't heard a satisfactory answer, um, you know, beyond the fact that, that we just didn't hold up our part of the bargain. Did you do any research into um, the apparitions in Africa and India, and uh, did the Marian apparitions have an effect on evangelizing um, those corners mm-hmm. of the world? Um, I did not look in, into apparitions in, in uh, those continents, largely because they haven't been approved by the Vatican. There's, there's all these different layers of, of approval that take place for apparitions. In effect, um, Michael O'Neill, who's uh, the miracle hunter, has done a great service for the church. You can look online at his site and see the various layers of, of um, what's been approved by local bishops, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but certainly there are, are places 
um, all over the world that, that have these strong devotions to Our Lady and have these great stories. In fact, that would be probably a great sequel to this book is just to look at these different traditions. I know even in Sri Lanka, which is certainly not a, a, a Catholic country, um, has a strong devotion to Our Lady and, has, and speaks about how she can, has brought peace to them at different, at different times. So um, she's uh, out there. It's just, um, again, I didn't include them because of the fact that uh, that could take me years to, to really focus on some of the, just even the bishop-approved apparitions in these different localities. Uh, thank you for coming to talk with us tonight. It was a very good conversation we've been having so far. Um, I guess one question I have is, from all the research that you've done, do you feel that there's one apparition that's particularly apt for the times that we're living in now, you know, given the various crises that we have in our culture? Um, or do you think that this is somewhat unprecedented and, you know, maybe we need a new apparition? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I, I think I would probably have to think about it. I mean, Fatima, of course, given the 100-year anniversary, in fact, that's the publisher and I were racing to make sure we could get this out um, in May of the 100th um, anniversary of, of Fatima. Um, so that, that one certainly seems pointed, and it's, it's open-ended. It, it, we don't know how it's going to end because of the fact that there's, there's still a lot of these questions that we were just talking about. Um, but, I, yeah, I think in a nutshell it really boils down to just the same message of, you know, pray the rosary and mass and the, the sacraments and, and, um, and certainly Mary in consecration. That, that it's just um, it, it doesn't need to be more complicated than that um, in terms of having to look at a specific one. And there's so many, that too. That's the other interesting factor that have so many different messages and, and points to them that um, it's an interesting tapestry just looking at all of them, I think, together. So. I was wondering, I've heard that there's a connection between Mary and Islam um, in a couple of different ways. I know one of his daughters was named Fatima. Right. Um, but building on the earlier point of Russia being consecrated, so my first question is, what is that connection, if you can mm -hmm. briefly say something about that? Mm -hmm. um, and then is there, is there something that can be done like a consecration for the Middle East to deal with a lot of what's right. happening there? Mm -hmm. um, good question. I, the connection between Islam is really interesting. She's mentioned 19 times in um, the Bible. She's mentioned 34 times in um, the Quran. And just the fact alone that she, she, I think, I've seen it two different ways, and maybe one of you can tell me, because now I've gotten myself confused about which one it is. But um, some people say that um, uh, the Quran says that, that Fatima, Muhammad's daughter, is the place of primacy. Others I've seen say it, it's um, that Mary has the place of primacy. But either way, it's um, she's either the top or the, s the second in line. Um, and so as a result of that, which is fascinating, I mean, why is it that Muhammad knew all of this about Our Lady in the first place? I mean, it tells you that there was already a very lively devotion to Our Lady during those early centuries. Um, so, that, so that's interesting. Um, but I think the other thing that I discovered was that we all are familiar with the connection with, with Fatima. Um, it was actually a site of a uh, Muslim princess who had a conversion there at, the, at that site, and, and that's where Mary appeared. Um, but there's also a connection to Lourdes, which I was unfamiliar with. There had been a Muslim um, general who was holding out against Charlemagne in the 700s, and um, he and his men were surrounded, and they, they were starving them out, basically, of this tower called Masabiel. And so um, Mirat was the general's name. Mirat... Um, at one point, there was a, a, a bird dropped a fish into the, the tower, and Mirat took the fish and threw it out at Charlemagne's men in order to show that he and his men were fine, they had plenty of resources, hoping that they would, um, Charlemagne and his men would get tired and they, they'd leave. 
Um, so the local bishop who knew Mirat, knew of Mirat, he knew Mirat had taken this vow that he would never surrender to any uh, mortal man. Um, the bishop went to him and said, look, I'm a representative of the Queen of Heaven. Would you consider um, surrendering to her? And sure enough, Mirat and his men all converted and um, became you know, great fighters for Catholicism. But Mirat took the name Loris, and that's where the, the name Lourdes comes from. It's a derivative of the name Loris for his um, work. So anyway, I think there's all these interesting connections, but, but um, you know, Our Lady time and again makes it clear that, she, you know, which side she's fighting for. Um, and, and that's really emphasized over and over again, I think, too. So as far as um, some kind of consecration for the Middle East, I, I'm, I'm not familiar with that. I, I know that there's an awful lot of people praying um, to Our Lady and um, trying to, uh, I think it was somewhere in the Middle East, I, I've if anybody knows the details, I can't remember, but um, there was a local bishop that consecrated the, the whole diocese to, to Our Lady um, for her protection, and um, so that they're certainly well aware of, of that, but I don't know of anything um, more on a grander scale than that. We have time for one more question. So I'm just thinking about the question about the Protestants and losing Our Lady. Mm -hmm. And then I'm thinking about what she did to gain so many converts in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Has she tried? Have there been any apparitions that are specifically addressed to the Protestants and and they're not listening? Yeah. Or And if she hasn't, mm -hmm. what do you think about that? Um, I, I'm not sure, again, because I haven't sifted through a lot of them, but I know it seems like her her mode of operating is really to 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 work more with the faithful. This back to this idea of the creative minority, to strengthen the faith of those with whom she's working, either through that or you know things like the miraculous medal, um, to to try and reach out that way and um, and then have the conversion take place. But as far as trying, I'm sure she's tried. I mean, she's tried everything out there. But um, it seems like when it comes to her her spiritual children. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't know of one that was specifically directed at, um, you know, I can think, there's one that I do mention, it, it's actually a Jewish man who was very anti-Catholic, and um, he, um, someone gave him a miraculous medal as sort of a dare, like, well, nothing will happen to you, you know, you hate Catholics, but nothing will happen to you if, if it's really nothing, and then um, in Rome he had a vision of Our Lady in the church, and she didn't say anything to him, but he knew, he had this sense in his heart um, of, um, you know, he understood her and, and the role of Christianity, he became a priest and, and moved to the Holy Land and con um, converted to Jews. So I'm certain that there are plenty of stories out there. I, again, I just haven't dug into anything beyond these, these few Vatican-approved ones. So anyway, well, thank you all very much. For coming. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Um, Carrie has so uh, graciously agreed to sign copies of her book. Uh, so please uh, stay and get your book signed. Thank you again.